Father in heaven, thanks for being here with us today. In many ways, we, we have come wanting to be stretched in our thinking. In many ways, we've come wanting to bring worship worthy to you. In many ways, Lord, we came for fellowship with other believers. We came at some level wanting to honor dads. But more than anything as a church, Lord, we want to bring people to you that you might be honored. And Father, sometimes that honor takes on a different look, a convicting look. This morning, we may well be convicted. I pray that that comes through your spirit, and I pray that we will pay attention. In Jesus' name, amen. If you brought a Bible with you, open to Philippians chapter 2, would you? Philippians chapter 2. We're going to get right into this, starting in verse 14. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, we'll go through verse 18. Listen close. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. I have a love-hate relationship with this passage. I love that it inspires me. I hate that it convicts me the way it does. Now follow that. I have a love-hate relationship with this passage. I love that it inspires me. I hate that it convicts me the way it does. Now, the convicting part really happened for me a long time ago when I read it first from the New International Version, the 1984 version of the New International Version of the Bible. And maybe that will help you understand this love-hate relationship that I have with it, just to see these words the way I originally heard them and memorized them. Take a look. Do everything without complaining or arguing. That becomes a little more personal for me than the way the English Standard Version reads, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, it doesn't change the meaning at all. This just becomes a bit more convicting for me. So I love that it inspires me. I hate that it convicts me the way it does. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, you have the same thing going on. You're inspired by what the apostle wrote, yet you are convicted by it. And maybe these two things are no issue for you at all. You never struggle with complaining or arguing. And if that's the case, this will be a really easy message for you. But if, like me, sometimes you struggle with those things, this is difficult teaching. So as we get into it this morning, I want you to be inspired, but I also want you to be convicted. So let's just jump into it. And with a little bit of a warning, we're not going to get much further than verse 14. So even though we read 14 through 18, we're going to have to come back next week to pick up where we leave off this week because there's enough teaching in verse 14 right here, do everything without complaining or arguing, that we can set up housekeeping for a while. So let's do that. We'll just jump into it. We'll start with that first one, complaining. 
Now, I'm not going to spend any time defining what complaining is because I'm assuming that even if you don't wrestle with the issue of complaining, you have been around some folks that do. So I'm not going to define it. You already know what it is. But maybe what you don't know is that there are different types of complaining. There are different types of complaining. At least three, according to modern counselors and those that have great understanding in this realm. The first one is called chronic complaining. Chronic complaining. Now, chronic complaining is really easy to understand because if you don't wrestle with it, you know somebody that does. I promise you that you do. Chronic complainers are the people that never see the good in anything. They always see the negative. And they're willing to point it out no matter what. Chronic complainers focus on the problem and never on progress. Chronic complainers have rewired their brain according to modern research. Psychologists would tell you that no one is ever born a chronic complainer. It is a rewiring of your brain. And if you spend enough time with these types of attitudes, complaining attitudes, that rewiring will become permanent, and it's the way you will see everything. Now, here's the good news. Psychologists, scientists, counselors, in all of their research have determined that you can rewire the rewiring. You can change it back. Particularly with the help of Jesus, you can rewire that mechanism within your heart and your mind so that you're not a chronic complainer. However, the bad news that goes with the good news is convincing a chronic complainer that it will work is very difficult. It's very difficult. So for chronic complainers, there is a rewiring within the brain that becomes a personality trait. The second type of complaining, this one's a lot more familiar to many of us, is called venting. It is a form of complaining. Now, venting deals with the expression of emotional dissatisfaction. That's what venting does. It happens when we get so dissatisfied or so upset by a specific situation or a specific person that we are so dissatisfied that we just have to release some of the pressure. So we vent it off. When we are complaining through venting, we are seldom ever looking for solutions. We are seldom ever looking for solutions. We are looking for someone to validate our feelings. That's what we're doing when we vent. Now, maybe you have never vented, but I have to tell you, I have. I'll get home at night and, and vent to my wife, and I'm not looking for a solution. I just want her to join me in the rant. More than anything else, I just want her to agree with me. Even if I am completely illogical in the midst of my venting, I'm not asking her to show me the error of my ways. I'm asking her to saddle a horse and ride with me. That's, that's what I'm looking for. And sometimes I'll walk into Deanie's office and I'll just say, I am here solely for the purpose of venting. It's kind of like a warning to him. Don't even dare try to tell me where I'm wrong or correct my thinking. I'm just about to spew. And so here it comes. Anybody else ever vented to somebody? You can be honest. Most of us have. Venting is, well, it's good for us and it's 
bad for whoever we're venting on because those same researchers have said that in their studies, and here's what they did, they set a group of people up, just clueless folks up, and then they brought people in to complain to them, to vent to them. They said that the attitude of the people that heard the venting was dramatically changed by the venter, by the complainer. And then in no surprise revelation, they said the mood of the person doing the venting was never better afterwards. Well, okay, I'm not sure I really wanted to hear that. That's highly convicting. Then there's this third type of complaining. It's a little bit different. It's called the instrumental complaint. The instrumental complaint. The instrumental complaint is about solving problems. It focuses on three things. Here they are up on the screen for you. Oh, whoops, I must have left the other three out. The instrumental complaint looks at the problem, looks for solutions, and then looks to create a path through. That's what an instrumental complaint does. It looks at the problem honestly. It looks for a solution, and then it looks for a path through the issue. That's what the instrumental complaint does. And when a person is instrumentally complaining, they are actually trying to set things right. They're trying to direct people through something. And what you find about instrumental complainers is they seldom ever do it. They seldom ever do it. Researchers would say that instrumental complaints make up only 25% of all complaints. Only 25%. The other true or the other two, chronic complaining and venting, cover the other 75%. Boy, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. That's just tough for us to deal with. It really is. It's very convicting. Now, I, if I'm going to complain, want to be the instrumental complainer. But I also want to follow what Scripture says and do everything without complaining. I want to try to avoid that because that's what the Bible calls me to do. But in those moments where I feel like I have to, there are some healthy ways to complain, some godly ways to complain. Let me show you just a few. We'll put these up. Number one, avoid dampening your mood by rarely complaining. Number two, complain only in instances where you believe it will affect real and positive change. Number three, consider whether affirmation or some other strategy will work instead of complaining. And number four, limit your exposure to complaining by limiting your exposure to complainers. It's pretty good medicine. It really is. Those four things can help determine and even change our moods, our points of view, how we approach life. You ever think that maybe that's why Scripture is so pointed with something like this? Do all things without complaining and arguing. Just do all things without it. Because you're going to be better, and the gospel will be better because of it. And that's the key to this whole thing. This is all about the gospel. This is all about the gospel. Once we understand that, we can hold on to it. The Apostle Paul in Philippians is actually teaching us that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And Jesus, if there was ever any individual that had the right to complain, well, it would have been him. 
He had every right in the world to complain. Let's just walk back through some of the things that we know about him. His mother was an unwed pregnant teenager, just starting right there before he was ever born. It sets the stage for him to be able to complain. Number two, he was born in a barn. He was born in a barn. We hear people say that all the time. Were you born in a barn? Jesus could say, yes, he was born in a barn. His cousin was beheaded, murdered, if you will, only months after Jesus' public ministry began. He never owned his own home. The American dream was never realized by Jesus. Wow. Wow. His safety and his life was threatened on a regular basis. Throughout his public ministry, it happened seemingly daily. He was hated by people in prominent positions of power, and he was rejected by the people that were closest to him. He was continually judged unfairly. He was mocked, spit on, beaten. He had a crown of thorns rammed onto his head. He was nailed to a cross where he died for people that seemingly could not have cared less. Jesus, if ever there was somebody that had right to complain, never did. And then he gave us a pattern to follow in his footsteps. He taught us to do the same, not just by example, but by teaching. Keep your finger there in Philippians chapter 2, but join me in the gospel of John. John chapter 16, verse 33. If you're reading from a red-letter edition of the Bible, these words will be in red. Jesus said them. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, wouldn't it be great if it read like this? I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. Complain about it as much as you possibly can, and that will help. It's not what the Bible says. Jesus is showing us that what He wants for us more than anything else is for us to adopt the attitude in the heart of an overcomer, not a complainer, an overcomer. In this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world, so follow my path. Follow my path path. And maybe, just maybe, that will lead us to some of the places that we need to be, that the gospel can always be lifted high. That's what we're after. We do these things not just for our sake, but for the sake of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So when Paul is telling us, do all things without complaining, it's not just for your sake. It's for the sake of the gospel. Oh, I have a love-hate relationship with this passage. That is so convicting. That is so convicting. Let's move into the second thing that he talks about. We'll go back to that. Terry, let's put that back up from the NIV. You probably remember exactly how this read. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Okay, the complaining thing I get, but sometimes it's just downright fun to argue. And so, really? Really, the Bible's going to tell me do everything without complaining and arguing? Why do I have to lose both for the sake of the gospel? For the sake of the gospel. At some point, you have heard at least one version of this quote. Here it is. Take a look. 
Don't talk politics or religion with family and friends. It only causes arguments and hard feelings. You've heard some version of that through the years. Now that's our way of saying, just don't get into foolish arguments. That's mom and dad's way of saying, don't get into foolish arguments. That's grandpa's wisdom passed down through the years telling us the same thing. Don't get into foolish arguments. Don't argue about politics and religion with people. All it's going to do is cause fights. It's going to make people feel bad. You ever wondered why that is? Why do we single out things like politics and religion and tell people to stay away from them? Well, the reasons are actually pretty simple. Number one, those two issues and many others like it are extremely personal. They're extremely personal. But politics and religion and many other issues like them are shaped by a person's worldview. So when you get into an argument about one of those two things, you're arguing about something much greater than the subject that you're talking about. You're talking about a worldview. And when you're arguing with somebody about an issue of that magnitude, the way they see the entire world and the way that they see society, you're not going to change it in one argument. Probably you're going to drive them deeper into their worldview because they're defending something very personal. So that's why we are instructed to stay away from those things. On a personal level, that makes sense. But for the sake of the gospel, shouldn't we get into arguments like that? The answer is no. Philippians chapter 2 tells us do all things without complaining or arguing, even when it comes to the issue of religion or the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of God's love coming to this earth in the form of His Son. We're not to argue about it because God wants to use something else, something much more dramatic like love to get people's attention. I'll take you to Acts chapter 24 and show you what this looks like. Keep your finger in Philippians chapter 2, but join me in Acts 24. Acts chapter 24, I'm going to start in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullius. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and in everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. In the original language, that would be referred to as sucking up. That's really what that was. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Now, these are the false accusations that have been brought against the Apostle Paul. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so, liars, and when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it's not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, 
But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia. They ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Paul twice, twice in his response to Felix says, I was never arguing with anybody. I was just there peacefully worshiping. There was never any tumult around me. I've only been here 12 days for goodness sakes. 12 days. And look what they're accusing me of. But two different times, Paul said, I was never involved in arguments. I was never involved in arguments. And the people that I was talking to aren't even here. So if they were listening to me stir things up, they ought to be here bringing accusation, but they're not. So that's Paul saying twice, I was never arguing with anybody. All I was doing was worshiping with a clear conscience. Now because of that, I want you to see what happens. Verse 22, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias, the tribune comes down, I'll decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. By never arguing, never complaining, two years he was in prison, locked up, well, kind of, he was free to move about, but he had a, a soldier attached to him, and his friends could come and tend to his needs, so there was a lot of liberty within it. But for two years he was a prisoner, and he met with Felix on a regular basis, now, Felix was a politician, was hoping to make some money from it, but he was hearing the gospel because Paul wasn't arguing. Fine, whatever it is, in this world, I'll have trouble, but I'm going to overcome the trouble. And that's what happened. Drusilla heard it too. That's the guy who would write, do all things without complaining or arguing. Wow. He's also the guy who would show us a different path. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. Rather than arguing, speak the truth in love. Just speak the truth in love. Well, how in the world do you do that? That's a good question. And Paul answered it for us earlier in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul shows us how. He shows us how to speak the truth in love. Even in the face of false accusations, he shows us how to do it. Even when something is unjust, he shows us how to do it. Even when we want to argue and it seems like that would just help the case, he shows us a different path. Speak the truth in love. Now, here are the components of it. We're going to go back to verse 2. It starts with all humility, that makes sense, and all gentleness with patience, Bearing with one another in love, which is really just another way of saying listening. Listen. Bear with one another in love and listen to what they have to say. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, which is another way of saying for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. Speak the truth in love for the sake of the gospel. Do all things without complaining or arguing for the sake of the gospel if not for your own sake, for the sake of the gospel. Oh, it's convicting. It's convicting. My attitude and the way I approach difficult situations can either bless the gospel or harm the gospel. Which path am I going to choose? Which one do I want? How am I supposed to go about that? All those things go through our mind, and in the midst of the moment can be extremely difficult. So we find a different path through, a godly path, one that brings honor and glory to the kingdom. That's what the book of Ephesians is teaching us. Choose a different path. It's a good book. It is a good book. In fact, in the midst of it, what you see is a contrast. Let's go back to what we were looking at. This is why you kept your finger there in, in Philippians 2. This is a contrast passage. Let me show you what I mean. Two verses, verse 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul wants us to know, he wants us to know that we live in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation, but we have the opportunity to shine like stars. That's the contrast. The people around us, the world around us, those that don't know the Lord, many of them choose a path of arguing and complaining. Well, by choosing a different path, a contrasting path, people see something different in you. And you begin to shine like stars in the midst of that crooked and depraved generation. This is not unique teaching to the Apostle Paul. He's not the only one that lived it. It's really, in essence, something that Jesus taught. Maybe you've read this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Right after Jesus went through His introduction that we refer to as the Beatitudes, He taught this. This was His first point. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You're the salt of the earth. You're a light in the midst of darkness. You're a lamp on a hill. That's where that all comes from. The contrasting teaching of Philippians chapter 2 ties itself back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, live different. Live different. So that people will not only see the difference, but they will see me. They will see me. So it becomes very practical. Do all things without complaining and arguing. Now we hear all of that and we think, yeah, okay, I see that. And that was certainly the way Jesus did it, even though he had reason to complain and reason to argue, and he chose not to. I get that. I even get that in John chapter 16, he tells us, in this world we're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Wants me to be an overcomer. And the apostle Paul says, follow the path of Jesus. And if we can't follow the path of Jesus, then follow the path that I set. Acts chapter 24, two years I was in prison. I didn't complain about it. I didn't argue with anybody about it. I just kept meeting with Felix over and over and over again, presenting the gospel. And and we can hear all that and say, well, that was Jesus and that was Paul. But what about me? What about me? How am I supposed to do that? I'm just an average person. I'm certainly not the Messiah. And I'm not an apostle. I don't see things the same way. Well, Maybe just maybe we need to look in Scripture and take a a little bit of a trip, travel a little bit of a, a path with just an average guy named Asaph. You know anything about Asaph? Asaph is an interesting character in the Old Testament. He really is. Asaph shows up in the book of 1 Chronicles, and we just get a, a brief glimpse of his story. Here's what we learn about him. He was a prophet. Asaph was a prophet. He was a musician, a very accomplished one. He was a prominent person in the kingdom of David. He was a leader there. Some scholars would tell you that he was the grandson of Samuel. He was a Levitical priest, and according to 1 Chronicles, he was entrusted with the ministry of the Ark of the Covenant. When the Ark would move, Asaph was out in front of it. He was the leader of the celebration of the ark. He was the main musician and the priest entrusted with the care of the ark. That was Asaph. Asaph was also the author of at least 11 of the Psalms, potentially 12. Of those Psalms, now let me just stop there for a second. Usually when we think of the Psalms, we always say that David wrote the Psalms. That's not true. David wrote most of the Psalms, but Moses wrote some Psalms. Solomon wrote a couple of Psalms, and Asaph wrote at least 11, possibly 12 of them. In the 73rd Psalm, it starts a 10-psalm run of Asaph. In the 73rd Psalm, Asaph, this guy that we just detailed, becomes very, very transparent. I want to show you what he does. So join me there. That's where we're going to end today. Psalm 73. By the way, in the midst of this, I want to remind you to read Scripture very small. Let me show you what I mean. Psalm 73 starts this way. A Psalm of Asaph. When you read that, that should make you stop right in your tracks. Stop and say, now who was Asaph? Remind yourself, because the author gives the context So make sure you know who the author is. Authorship matters in Scripture. So a psalm of Asaph. Listen to how he starts. 
Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, that's how we expect every psalm to begin, right there. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. You read that and you think, whoo, I am in for a great ride now. But listen to what happens next. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. The author says, yeah, God's been really good to Israel, but not me. I'm struggling a bit. And he's about to tell us why. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, for the next few verses, he's going to bang away at, at what he's talking about until he gets to verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. So here's what he's saying. The wicked are getting rich and I can barely pay the bills. Why is it that these ungodly people seem to always make it better? Why is it that they seem successful when those of us that are trying to walk with the Lord are always struggling? Have you ever asked a question like that? Have you ever been around somebody that's asking a question like that? Psalm 73 is the answer. Write it down somewhere in your Bible so that you can take them right back to Psalm 73 and walk them through Asaph's life. Asaph, that guy that we just detailed, that's what he's saying. I'm struggling to pay the bills and these wicked people are making money hand over fist. Dini would say it this way. He is screaming as loud as he can, hey, no fair. That's what he's saying. Verse 16, he says, but when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. This is too much for me to try to wrap my head around. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to run. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Now he's getting some understanding because he's gone into the sanctuary of the Lord where the Ark of the Covenant is at, and it's changing his perspective. Now watch what it does to his attitude. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So if Asaph was complaining to God, doesn't it make sense he was complaining to anybody else that would listen? He was a beast about this. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. You're enough, God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 27, for behold, those who are far from you shall perish you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Oh, Asaph could complain. But then he went into the sanctuary of the Lord and God changed his attitude. He reminded him of what really matters, of who really matters. And that was God. And God was enough. Do all things without complaining and arguing? 
if you can't follow the path of Jesus because that's just too much. And the Apostle Paul seems to have a lot more of the Spirit of the Lord than you do. Then pay attention to Asaph's transparent life. And look at what he said. I'm going to go into the sanctuary of the Lord. I'm going to listen to the voice of God. And I'm going to apply it. And God will be enough. And I can do all things without complaining or arguing. When I understand God is enough. Amen? Even in the midst of the conviction, amen? Even in the application, amen? See what you do with it. Stand and pray with me, will you? Father in heaven, it's passages like this that how they cut us like a sword. They divide us. As the writer of Hebrews would say, it splits our joints and our marrow. Passages like this judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. But Lord, I am so glad that Asaph was transparent in his writing so that we could see somebody else that struggles with things like this. Lord, thank you for his understanding. When he went to reconcile all of it in his mind, it was too overwhelming until you. Father, let us surrender the same to you. And Lord, please change our attitudes as you change our hearts and our lives. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.